So welcome everybody to Carlsbad Bible Church. We're glad you're here. And um, today um, we will be reading through the Gospel of John chapter 10. So open your Bibles, John chapter 10, for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> chapter 10, 22. All right, it says that at the time the feast of the dedication took place to Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us openly. Jesus answered them to them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my heart's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Then it says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus, uh, Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works for, from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews said to Jesus, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, Make yourself to be God. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your word. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ is God, Lord, because if he wasn't, Lord, he'd be insufficient down the cross for us with no power just like us. God, we just pray for today that all is a glorifying to you. Pray for every one of us who will be speaking and teaching and, uh, and worshiping you, Lord, through, um, through all of the preaching and teaching and uh, through music, Lord. We thank you that we're all here today, and I pray that we have a good time. We pray in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. That's great to see you this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians in chapter 2, and I know we had a little bit of a break from the book of Philippians last week as Yusuf shared with us about 1221 Global's mission and then we had a great fellowship meal afterward. I heard you were, you were touched and inspired by that message. And today, as we open up God's Word, we're going to be back in our study of the book of Philippians in chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. And we'll be going through verses 11, although our teaching will be confined mainly to one verse this morning, and that is verse 8. But we are going to kind of refresh ourselves on where we left off Sunday before last so that's why we're beginning at verse 3, just for context's sake. So starting there, verse 3, chapter 2 of Philippians, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And let us pray once more. 
Father, we thank you for your word today. Your word inspires us. Your word restores us. Your word speaks encouragement to us, and it also brings admonishment to us, God. And I pray that it would do all those things that you've intended it for, for it to do in the hearts of those that are here today hearing the message, and even those that might be attending uh, via Facebook Live or these other media platforms, God, that your truth would penetrate, and as it is designed to do, be that sword that pierces the vision of soul and spirit of joint and marrow and discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We, we can be insincere and we can fool men with our words, but Lord, we cannot fool you. You see into our hearts and you know the things that we may need to bring before you in confession. Uh, we know the things that we are being called to do and help us to look to this example of the utmost obedience found in Jesus Christ and let that be the gauge by which we determine our obedience unto you, God, and that we do that because we love you and that we have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I wanted to do a brief summary, I hope to be brief, from our study Sunday before last. So we're going to look back first at verse 3, which is where we started this morning, and we see what Paul is offering as instruction to the church in Philippi, but we shouldn't just see this as being instructions for the church in Philippi but we should see it as instruction to Carlsbad Bible Church as well, to all believers, to all those who call themselves the body of Christ, the church. When he says in verse 3 that we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is describing how Christians within the church are to get along with one another. This is what unity in the body of Christ should look like. It's not a round of production. You know, our worship team does not perform a concert for you here so that you wouldn't think that maybe that is what our devotion is centered around. It's not about a production. It's not about an event that we have some special uh, potluck or we have some special guests here and that that is what it is centered around. It's not around a personality, even though there are people that have charismatic personalities that are, are just attractive people that we want to uh, please them, we want to gather around them. It's not about a personality. It's not about a political leaning. Unity is had by the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is where it is found. And if you want an example of what it looks like not to be selfishly motivated, not to be conceited, what it looks like to count others as more significant than yourself and look out not only for your interests but for the interests of others, then look to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul sets before us the person of our Lord Jesus Christ as the supreme example of humility. And humility, as Paul is sharing it here, seems to be one of the binding agents that hold us together in our faith. That there are expressions of Christ-like character that we can exhibit as we relate to one another that serves to bind us and join us together. And Paul is exhorting us in verse 5, "...have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus." And some translations have this attitude 
among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then what he follows with in verse 6 declares how Jesus provides us the perfect example of this kind of humility that Paul has described for us in verses 3 and 4. And it is this mind or this attitude that is to be expressed in us, that is ours in Christ Jesus. If you name the name of Christ and you claim Christianity and you not only talk the talk, you you walk the walk, you should be exhibiting this kind of humility in your life. Paul goes on to say in verse 6, "...who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This is Christ appeared as a man, but he did not leave his deity behind. And the theologians throw out this really big word here when it comes to this. They call it the hypostatic union of God the Father and God the Son. That God the Son did not leave his deity in heaven. He didn't even leave a portion of it there behind. But he was 100% God when he came in human flesh. But then he was also 100% man. And I know the mathematics don't necessarily make sense to you here. But we'll, we'll look to try to explore that just a little bit further in a moment. But it... Paul says here, who, this is being Christ, though he was in the form of God, we must understand what this word form really means. And we have to look at the original text, which is Greek here. The word for form of God is morphe. And morphe means that that is the essential form of something that never alters. So as Christ came in the flesh to be man, he was still in the form of God. That the essence of God that he possessed as God's son who was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that was Jesus. He was the morphe of God. He is the essential true form of God. It means true God from true God and the same essence of the Father. So we cannot separate in any way His Godness from His personhood when He walked among us here on this earth. Paul continues and said that He did not count, though, equality with God as something to be grasped. And there is sometimes some confusion about what Paul is indicating here when he says that now Christ does not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But if you look at another translation, I kind of like the way the Christian Standard Bible uh, phrases this. Rather than using the word grasped, the word exploit is used there. So it reads, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited. So though he had every right to use his godness, to use the power of his deity for himself and to display himself on this earth in a a most powerful way by doing, you know, as he willed to bring people, you know, to him and establish some kind of earthly throne here, he did not exploit that, though he had the ability to do it and he had the right to do it, but rather he came became incarnate and took on humanity, that he would set aside selfish motives to not take advantage or exploit even when he could. You know, when, when Matthew comes to me and maybe he wants to have a little bit of a wrestling match with his papa, well, I might engage with him a little bit, but I'm not going to use my full strength 
to overcome him because I know that, that I could hurt him if I were to do that. Now, that, my days may be numbered. I know that. There will be a time <laughs> where he'll have to hold back on me, but there is a self-limiting that I have to do in order not to overpower him or to hurt him, to overcome him. And that, that's the way with any adult when they're, you know, with a child is that we could easily overcome them and hurt them. So we must self-limit. But notice the way that Christ here, had it says he empties himself. When he emptied himself, he didn't subtract from who he was. He didn't take some of his godness and set it aside. So now I'm no longer 100% God. Now I'm just 50%. But rather, it says he took on the form of a servant. So not by subtraction, but by addition did he empty himself, in that he self-limited himself. He took on the form of a servant, and he doesn't remove anything from his, his nature. He doesn't remove anything from that morphe being in the form of God. So by taking the form of a servant, he adds that to himself as that self-limitation, if you will. So he could have grasped what was rightfully his. He could have exploited that as the all-powerful God. He could have brought an end to it all before the cross ever happened. I mean, he had that right. He had that power. But he didn't exploit that. He didn't grasp that even though he had every opportunity and right to. I think, though, we still get a glimpse at Christ's deity, at his godness, when we see him being apprehended, or they're about to apprehend him, uh, in the Mount of Olives, right after the, the prayer to the Father and taking on the cup of wrath in John chapter 18, when he's been betrayed by Judas and they come to apprehend him, we catch a glimpse of his power. Just so that we don't think that he somehow left it behind, we see in John chapter 18, verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. That is the power that he had at his possession. That is what he could have exploited all along up to this point, but he chose not to. But yet we see this glimpse of that power that tells us he was still in control of everything that was happening to him. But he took instead this form of a servant Jesus demonstrates this to his disciples in the upper room we did look at an example from John I'm sorry Mark chapter I think 13 or 14 where he institutes the Lord's Supper for the first time with his disciples and how he took the bread he took on the flesh that he blessed it he lived a perfect life he broke it he willingly allowed himself to endure the cross for our sake and then he gave it he gives to us of his grace. He gives to us of his salvation. And we see humanity, the humility of Christ expressed in our taking of the Lord's Supper together. But yet we have another example that he provides us in John chapter 13 when he is about to share in the Lord's Supper with the disciples. We are told that he takes the basin, he takes the towel, and he assumes the position of a, a servant. He kneels and he washes the disciples' feet showing them the form of a servanthood, the, the, what he took on, how he emptied himself by taking on this form of a servant, and he's showing them what they are to do to each other. He's showing the church what they are to do for one another. 
taking on the form of a servant. And it's interesting that if you look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you read this account in John, you have an understanding of what was going on among the disciples before Jesus took this position of a servant. And they were bickering with one another, and they were jockeying for the position of who was going to be at the right hand of Jesus, still thinking, okay, he's going to establish this earthly throne. We're going to assume some position of power. We're going to get a special title, and I'm going to be first. And so they're arguing they're bickering with one another, me first, me first, we know kind of this, this childness, this toddler-like phase that the disciples are exhibiting here, and what does Jesus do? He takes on the form of a servant, and he kneels, and he washes their feet, and you can just see the wind almost coming out of their cells as that happens, that this is what it looks like, this is what unity is, this is what humility is. He didn't empty himself by removing his divine nature or power, but he assumed the form of a servant. That he chose to come down, not exploit it, though he had the right, and he took on instead this role of a servant for us. And that word for servant there is the Greek word duolos, and it's translated as bond slave. And some, so we understand this is not just like a, a servant that can kind of pick and choose, you know, when they want to serve like we do with our, our employment, how we go and, and we are, are serving our master, if you will, because we're getting uh, a paycheck from them. But this is a service where you are fully surrendered and submitted to the will of the master. That's the type of servant that is indicated here with the Greek word doulos, which is bond slave. And this is more or less where we left off week before last. And I want to give it a little bit bigger summary than I normally do since we had a Sunday in between here. But now let's think about what it is meant, what is meant by being this kind of servant. And Paul expounds on that in the rest of this passage by saying, he took the form of a servant, he's being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So his being in the likeness of men and being found in human form is not like the word that we see in verse 6 where it says, though he was in the form of God. So there's two different Greek words that are used here that we translate as form. When he is in the form of God, we've already covered that one, he was the morphe of God. He was the essence of God. He was truly and fully God. But the other word that we see here in verse 8, where he's being found in the human form, human form is a different Greek word, and that is schema. So there's morphe, which is the essence that doesn't change about him. His godness did not change. But then we have schema here in how he came as the form of man. Morphe is the essential form, which never alters. His deity, his godness never altered. But schema, his being in the form of man, is the outward form. And the outward form of someone changes, changes very often, sometimes depending on how much you eat. But the, more, the schema of man is going to change from being a child to being a toddler, to being a teenager, to being an adult, to being an older person. That outward form of us continually changes and changes. So when we think about him being in the form of a man here, it's the schema form, which means his outward appearance was continually changing, just like us. 
And he was tempted by all the same things as we are as we age and as we grow in our bodies. So yes, he was in the form of man, but not in the essence. He maintained the essence, the morphe of God. Another way of maybe understanding this is we are, our morphe is that we are humanity. That all of us in here are human and our humanity will never change about us. And for Jesus, his morphe was that he was God. In essence, he was God. In essence, we're humanity. But the outward appearance, the schema form, is something that undergoes continual change. So it's important for us to know the form that he came in in verse 6, his morphe, and then the form that he was in human, that the two are linked together here. His outward appearance was changing, but his inner deity did not. Coming back to verse 8, and being found in human form, being found in human schema, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the layers of humanity, hopefully have you seen here, run really deep. We have more than just one example of humility that is seen here. I'm sorry if I'm using the word humanity sometime. I mean humility here. The layers of humility run deep. And this is what we have seen so far. We have seen his humility in the fact that he came down from his heavenly throne and he willingly submitted to the will of a father in that now he took on this human form. So just that in itself is a clear demonstration of humility. And then we also see another layer to this humility was seeing in his willingness not to exploit the power that he had as God for his advantage, but rather he, he walked this earth as, as we walk. He experienced the same things that we experience. And it was a scene there that he subjected himself to all of our weaknesses, to all of our thirst, our hunger, our tiredness. When he went into the desert and he was tempted by the enemy for 40 days, that he, he experienced the hunger, he experienced the thirst and the weariness, and yet he did not sin. It was also seen in his taking on the form of a servant, as we've just described, rather than taking what he had every right to take. He could have told the disciples, get down and wash my feet. You know who I am. But he didn't. He showed them what humility was. And it was seen also in his becoming obedient to a profound and a deeper level than any of us could really express. He came obedient even unto death, death upon a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. His whole life, was dedicated to the will of his Father, was dedicated to glorifying the Father. In John chapter 15, 9 through 10, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There we see his, his willingness, his readiness, always there to keep his Father's commandments. Jesus' obedience was even prophesied about him. The fact that he would take on human form, that he would become obedient, is seen in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 through 6. The Lord God has opened my ear. This is a, a messianic prophecy, by the way. It says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. The obedience of the Son 
is seen here even before the cross. It was prophesied about Jesus. And he didn't let his obedience slip like we do. You know, we wake up some days and we feel that we're ready to serve, we're ready to be obedient, we're fully surrendered and submitted to God, and we get out there and we maybe do really well that day, but then the next day, life hits, like, okay, well, I'm not feeling as obedient as I did yesterday. Maybe I can kind of let that slide a little bit over here today. We would not see that in Jesus, Jesus fully obedient to God. And that's our standard, that's what we are to calibrate ourselves to, to the point where he is obedient unto death. How did he become obedient? Well, he became obedient even to death on the cross. He was in total surrender and submission to the will of God, and Christ maintained that unto the end. He didn't just wake up on a bad day and say, well, sorry, Dad, it's just not happening today. That was not Jesus, fully and totally surrendered. Sometimes what we like to think about is us, that everything that Jesus did, coming to this earth, taking on human form, you know, being obedient to the Father, um, was actually all about us. In fact, we've seen some worship songs that are probably more or less poorly written, you know, there's one that says, he didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. And I don't think that's theologically accurate. Why did Jesus do what he did? Because of his obedience, first and foremost, to the will of his Father. Jesus' obedience wasn't to us, it was to God. And it would be dangerous for us to view the loving obedience of Christ to the Father as being exclusively for the sake of men. That's not thinking about this in a, a humble way. That would be very prideful us, for us to think that that was exclusively what Jesus came down for. The fact of the matter is, is that it was primarily out of love for God that he accepted the cross. In Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scrolls of the book. He came to do the Father's will. And that was at the forefront of his being here. That was, that was why he went to the cross. And this is the truth of God's word. And we, we kind of want that to be uh, something that we include in our evangelism efforts is that oftentimes we go and we immediately launch into, well, Jesus just loves you and he, and he did this for you. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but at the same time, we need to tell them the, the reason why he came was that he loved the Father, he was obedient to the Father's will, and without this saving work of Christ, they are utterly lost. And this is the truth of God's word, and we can't overlook it. But at the same time, it doesn't detract from the wonder that Christ loves each and every one of his people with all of his love. And that is the amazing thing also of what he did for us. Absolute obedience to the Father, but also that he loves those whom he has saved. The profoundest degree of humiliation, though, was reached in that his death 
was not to be a natural death, that he came and he just lived a long natural life and he died somehow of old age and just in his sleep. But the profoundest degree of humiliation was reached in that his death was not to be a natural one, not an honorable one, but the painful and accursed death of the cross. It was a torturous, painful death. It was prolonged agony. And for Jesus, it was enduring the Father's wrath. His own Father pouring out his wrath towards sin upon the Son. And Paul is telling each of us that call ourselves Christians, that name the name of Christ, that we must adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus. That he came down from his omnipotent throne and he became a servant. And that he emptied himself of all the divine abilities by adding to himself the form of a slave. And he took it to the utmost where he was obedient unto death and death upon the cross. His humility culminated there. And we sang a lot about it just recently. That the focus would be upon the cross of Calvary. That he was obedient to, the de- to death on the cross. And there the one who knew no sin would become sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And really only those who are saved can have the proper perspective of the cross. Outside of salvation, the cross appears as something foolish to want to take up. To serve a king who, who died there. Paul would write to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, 17-18, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should make, be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the unsaved, they view the cross as folly, as a place of abject scorn and rejection. But to those who are saved, it represents many things. It represents prophecy fulfilled. It represents our salvation. It represents forgiveness. It represents our hope. It represents our our peace. And, you know, we could list out a number of other things that it represents to us. The cross of Christ has inspired so many hymns that we sing in churches today. In fact, our worship team led us in many of them, but one of the most remembered that comes to my mind is a hymn that was written by Isaac Watts. And it says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart was rolled away. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it was at the cross where the great exchange occurred. And that was where the worst about me and the worst about you was transferred upon Jesus himself. The sins of the world would be laid upon him so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ, so that by faith in him, God then imputes the best about Christ upon us, his righteousness. We are declared righteous in Christ. And that's the great exchange, the transference of our sins to him so that we might receive the best of him.
and that God would no look, look upon us no longer in wrath, but there would be a peace relationship restored between us and God the Father because of what the Son did. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we can see why this passage is thought to be a hymn by many theologians. They say that Paul changes his style of writing beginning at verse 5 and going through verse 11. And it has a very, um, like a psalm kind of tone to it in the way that Paul writes it. He changes his style here, and it's almost like Paul is now writing a hymn for us to sing and worship God about uh, over what Christ has done in giving us this ultimate example of humility. Still today, many of our worship songs and hymns are cross-centered, and I can see why that is, because there is so much to be considered when we think upon the cross upon which our Savior bled and died. Some people just think of it as a symbol, you know, that stands here in the corner, and, you know, it represents a place of torture. This is what the Romans would would, uh, use as a form of execution, But there are so many other things I think that it tells us. It tells us what was accomplished for us. But it also tells us what God's nature is. In the cross, when we worship Him, we are to think about His perfect justice and that it was meted out on the perfect Son so that the perfect payment could be made for the sins committed against a perfectly holy God. So we see justice, God's justice in the cross. We see the cross as the mercy of God in providing the substitutionary atonement of a perfect lamb for those who should have been condemned. And there at the cross we see God's wisdom in that he provided this glorious solution for our sin dilemma. And we don't forget about the cross even when we go to heaven. In fact, we see in Scripture where the cross is the focus of our worship in heaven. We shouldn't think that it's just this symbol of wood, these cross beams up here, but the Savior who died upon it, really. In His presence, in the book of Revelation, the saints proclaim, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We still continue to sing about his work on the cross, even in eternity. As we are taken down this path by Paul, leading to the perfect example of humility, humility, It is in the cross that we find ourselves being set free from a misguided self-love to passionately love the one who redeemed us. It takes us back to the exhortation that Paul gives us in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if we are to have this attitude of humility in our lives, what would this mean? And this is where we have to really stop and let it evaluate Let the word judge our hearts to see where we are in this attitude. I feel like all of us here would probably say that this is in an area where we need improvement. 
our humility towards one another. Not to consider my own rights above others, but to put others' needs ahead of my own. I want to go back and and kind of personalize verses 3 through 4 of chapter 2 here. Because this is really kind of where it starts. Paul's calling for unity. And know a lot of uh, people have done this with John 3.16. Say, for God so loved Owen that he gave his only son. We, we personalize that verse. I thought about doing it here. If Paul were to just be directing this to me or to you and putting your name in here, Owen, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, Owen, count others more significant than yourselves. Let Look not only to Owen's own interest, but also to the interests of others. And that includes my brothers and sisters in Christ, my family and my co-workers. Remember that Paul is telling the Philippians that if they think they cannot humble themselves to the will of one another, that they need to ponder the obedience of the Lord of glory who was willing to give up his glorious throne, willing to give up his rights, as an example of perfect selflessness. This is the attitude the saints at Philippi were to manifest. It is the attitude of every believer to manifest and to assure unity within the body of Christ. This is a charge to Carlsbad Bible Church. It is a charge to every believer here. What do you think would it mean, it would mean that we too must be willing to die and die to our old desires and selfish interests. Positionally speaking, this has already occurred at the cross, that when he died, we died. When we do baptisms here, we talk about the symbology of that all, all that. It's not what saves us, but rather it represents what Christ has already done for us, and that we have died to self, and we have been raised into a new life with Christ Jesus. He calls us to take up our cross daily and to live for Him, and this means death to self daily. And how is this possible? Well, jumping ahead a few verses later, Paul says that it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So we're not just left on our own to exercise and demonstrate this humility towards one another, but He gives us His Holy Spirit. And that God, by His Holy Spirit's presence within us, that He is working in us both to will and to work His good pleasure. And that is for the unity of the body of Christ. And as a Christ follower, we have that ability. We have the capacity to show humility towards one another in this way. That is our source of strength to overcome the patterns of this world because this world and this culture would tell you that you need to grasp for everything that you have the right to. You need to walk over the top of people. You need to demand your rights. And that's why the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Because we see here the exact opposite of what this world and this culture just pushes upon us. The pattern of this world is just that. It is defiance to the word of God and it was just moving others out of the way so that you can get what you think you have the right to. But in Christ, it's to live our life that is patterned after the Lord. 
Paul said in verse 5 that this mind is yours in Christ Jesus. The Spirit provides the enablement that we might be willing to die to ourselves daily. And we might say, well, that sounds hard, or it doesn't sound very appealing to us. And some of you may even think, well, that's just a special gift for some people that call themselves Christians, as if we could call humility a special spiritual gift. But if you are a Christian and you sincerely have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then He has indwelled you with Himself by His Holy Spirit. And this humility is something that you should be exhibiting and able to manifest in your life because He has provided you with ability to do that. So it's just not some special gift for some that they're able to do better than others. You all have this capacity. Jesus repeatedly called for death to self in the lives of those who would seek to follow after him. And where our journey begins in humility is at the foot of the cross. There the ground is level, and anyone who comes in must come in the same way as everyone else does. The reality of what took place is here for us to behold. Have you met God in his mercy there as he gave his son so that you might be set free? We must be confronted there with the weight of our sin. We need forgiveness. We need our debt erased. And Christ made the necessary sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven. He and he alone appeased the Father's wrath towards our sin. We need to put our trust put our faith in his saving work that he accomplished on the cross, realizing that you have nothing to bring but your sin. No work will save you. No religious act will save you. No baptism or sharing in the Lord's Supper does not save you. Your being here hearing this message won't save you. Only the Savior saves. Put your trust in him today. Confess your sins to him and repent. Understand the grace he has for you by having given of himself to the uttermost. Now, Christ's exaltation is coming in verses 9 through 11. We'll get to that next Sunday, and he will take hold of what is rightfully his. But for today, let us ponder this perfect example of humility and strive to live this out in an intentional way in our own lives, and especially within the body of Christ, his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just this supreme example of humility. And as Jesus did not grasp what he rightfully had the right to, but rather he took on the form of a servant. Help us to live out what this means for us, God, that we are to die to ourselves, that we are to take up our cross daily, that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price. I pray, God, that here at Carlsbad Bible Church, that we resemble what this means, this example has been given to us. And we know we fall short and we fail in many areas of our life, but where we do, we pray that we're convicted and reminded when we need to come back to this attitude and have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in your son Christ Jesus, who gave himself to the uttermost so that our sins might be forgiven and that we might have a new life in him. And I pray, God, for someone that may not know you in that personal way that today you have in some way uh, touched their heart that this has resonated within them that they recognize their lost condition and that the only thing that they can bring to you is their sin and they plead upon your mercy and you are so willing to give it God for those who call upon your name in Jesus name
Amen.